Philip, it's on. I'll be reading out of Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. It's on page 1165. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are cir the circumcision, the worship, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus to put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, enlighten these words to us. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for uh, just on, on the surface of this, what it uh, speaks of, that uh, in and of ourselves we are nothing, but through you we have everything. So, Father, I just pray that you uh, would just uh, put the right words on pastor's mouth and give us ears to hear. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Dave. Well, good morning. We have some new faces who come to see some baptisms, I think, this morning. My name's Aaron, for those of you who I've not met yet. Uh, I think this morning's passage actually is perfect for our time uh, celebrating a baptism as God's people. Uh, I, I hope to show you that this morning uh, as we are in uh, God's word and we continue in our study in Philippians. Some of you got some snow last night, I heard. We did not. Uh, and it made me think of uh, when we complain, you generally have someone like Grandpa who jumps in and says, well, son, I used to walk to school uphill both ways in the snow. And in Vermont, I believe that actually does happen. But can you believe that in California, people would say that? When I was a kid, you know, I had to walk up to the TV to turn the channel or, you know, someone had to sit there with the antennas on the TV just so the family could watch that show that they wanted or commercials. You mean you have to watch those things or wait seven days for that next episode to come on? 
Or if you wanted to listen to that song you heard last week on the radio, you had to get that cassette ready in the car, ready listening for that song to start playing. You push record, you add it, you might have missed a little bit of recording over the last favorite song you had, but you made a, a mixtape. And I think we oftentimes, we tend to look back to justify our arguments. Your life wasn't as hard as mine was. Well, this morning, I think Paul wants us to focus on what's ahead of us, not what's behind us. Friends, we are called to rejoice. We are called to rejoice by not looking backwards, but we are called to rejoice by looking forwards. So will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we can rejoice in you. We thank you that we can rejoice by being here as your people together this morning. We thank you that we can rejoice in opening up your word, being submitted to it, being transformed by it. We have much to rejoice, and so would our joy abound this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So look with me again at Philippians chapter three, verses one through three. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So the ESV translation, which is on your seats, we often read here, says, finally. Some of your translations might say further or furthermore. And what Paul is doing is he often, he'll lay out his gospel truths, the indicatives of the gospel before he starts to lay out gospel commands, gospel imperatives. And so before Paul transitions to his final matters, he reminds them to rejoice. We've seen this a few times already in Philippians. But this is not Paul's conclusion. This is Paul's transition to some pressing needs within this church. He says to his brothers and sisters in this church to rejoice in the Lord, signifying their sphere of influence from where their joy comes from. And this joy is unrelated to their circumstances. We've seen they've had some challenging circumstances, but it's related to their sphere of influence, being in Christ. And regardless of one's circumstances, we are to rejoice. Good circumstances, we rejoice. Difficult circumstances, we rejoice. And this relates to contentment, as we'll see in a couple weeks as we get into chapter four, that regardless of the circumstances, we're to be content in the Lord. The unchanging relationship that we have between God and us, the unchanging one. And so God is sovereign, and so we rejoice. And for Paul, he says that it is safe. It is safe for him, it is safe for his hearers to say this again. Because it helps us to avoid false teaching. We saw this in chapter one where Paul went after those who were preaching a different gospel. They wanted to preach from envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition. And this morning we have more opponents of the gospel. And more serious opponents, I think, 
And we need to, friends, look out for them. Paul says that we are to look out for the Judaizers. But Judaizers isn't in the text. But let me explain. A little history of the Judaizers. The Judaizers are those who would require more things of God's people to be saved other than believing in the gospel. Specifically, they would require circumcision. You may recall the events from Acts chapter 15 where non-Jewish men and women were starting to believe and they didn't know how to interact with them and to welcome them into God's family. And so they had a council. They are good Baptists and they wanted to have a meeting with a bunch of leaders. They concluded in Acts 15 that nothing else is required of God's people than to believe the gospel in order to be saved. And these Judaizers, back in Acts chapter 15, they required more. And they have now made their way to Philippi. And Paul goes after them, and he doesn't do so very gently. He calls them three things. First, he calls them dogs. For the Jews, dogs were scavengers. They weren't Fido that would come and eat food off of your table or lay in your bed at night. They were scavengers. They were dirty. They were unclean. And this comment, as one commentator said, is full of bite. By trying to make Gentiles clean through circumcision, Paul calls the Judaizers themselves unclean dogs. Second, Paul calls them evildoers. They thought, these Judaizers thought, that they were God's righteous ones, but their work was evil. When we require more of salvation, friends, it is evil because it is against God's word. Isaiah 5.20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. And the third thing he calls them are mutilators. Where circumcision cuts around, mutilators, they cut off or they cut and mutilate into pieces. And this terminology comes from the pagan practices of the time where pagan religions in the first century would require men who wanted to be holy to become eunuchs. And as one commentator says, that when Jewish rituals are practiced in a spirit that contradicts the message of the gospel, the rituals lose their significance and become no better than pagan practices. And so friends, look out for those who require more for you to be saved than the gospel alone. Any other gospel is a false gospel. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Where God saves sinners. We don't save ourselves. We don't earn our salvation by doing things to earn God's favor. That God has done it for us. He has earned it for us through the death of his son, through his son's resurrection. And it all comes from grace. As Dallas Willard, a author who recently passed, he says this, that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude and effort is an action where we do not earn anything. We do work out our salvation 
as we saw in chapter two, with fear and trembling, for or because God is at work within us. It is a response to the salvation that we have that we obey what is in God's word. And as Cal mentioned, today we are celebrating baptisms after our service. And the church still struggles with adding things to one's salvation, the things that we have to do. Give this amount of money for financial freedom or a greater blessing. Get baptized to actually be saved. You can do it. You can fix your life. Be more positive. You will be saved from your troubles. Vote red. Vote blue. You will be saved. All those gospels are adding work to our salvation and they're wrong and they are evil. But baptism is a sign of that inward transformation that we have, that we receive from believing in the gospel. Paul says this in Romans chapter six, describing baptism. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so baptism, the Lord's Supper, membership in a local church are not required for someone to be saved, but they are an outward sign of the salvation that we've received from God. We're Christians, we respond to the gospel by joining a local church submitted to local elders. Christians respond to the gospel by celebrating and participating in a baptism and showing the church, this is what I believe. And Christians also respond to the gospel by celebrating the Lord's Supper, where we remember Jesus' body given for us, his blood shed on the cross for our sins, which we did last week as a family. And as our friends get baptized today, or as you celebrated communion last week, or in a couple weeks we will add some new members, these are opportunities for Christian faithfulness. They aren't required for you to be a Christian, but they are a response to the salvation that we've received. And these Judaizers were requiring circumcision as an obligation for Christian faithfulness. Paul says to look out for or because, he says, we are the circumcision. He says, we are the people of God, not those folks who add other requirements to our salvation. As you recall, probably around this time last year, we were in the book of Genesis, and the idea of circumcision actually started back there in Genesis chapter 17. I'll remind you of what God said in chapter 17, verse 11. God said, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And this made God's people look different from the world around them. But it was a means to point to what they truly needed, a transformed heart, a transformed life of repentance and a response to the grace that not only Abraham received, but we as God's people receive in Christ. Jeremiah calls God's people to a repentance and a circumcision of their heart in chapter four of his book. He says, circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts. O men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And we as God's people 
are those who have a heart transformed. Not an outward appearance that is surgically changed. We are changed from our heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We are the circumcision. And Paul is including himself with not only the Gentiles, but the Jews who have put their faith in Christ alone for the salvation of their sins and not their religious rituals. In verse three, God's true people, they do three things. We worship, we glory in Christ, and we have confidence. First, we worship as God's people by the Spirit of God. Jesus said this in John chapter four, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Worship means to, to render a respect and true believers render their respect to God in all aspects of life. Paul says this in Romans chapter one, I'm 12. I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Worship is showing something of value. The word actually comes from worth and ship put together for worth worship. Where we worship in song, we worship in reading and studying and submitting to God's word. We respond in the preaching of God's word in worship. We worship by obeying God's word. We worship by having a baptism, as we will soon have. God's people, we worship. And so a question, is that a posture of your life? What do you worship? Is what gets your attention? What is the thoughts that keep going through your mind that gets your mind share, your resources, and your time? God's people, we worship God. Second, Paul says that we glory in Christ. Those words might sound familiar for you because we saw those in chapter one, verse 26. And it's a boasting in God. It's boasting in his work, not our work. And so is that the posture of your life? What do you boast in? What do you glory in? What do you talk most about? What do you tell others most about? And this leads to our third thing, that we put our confidence in being God's people through his work, not our work. Friends, our confidence is in Christ. Our confidence is in God's faithfulness to keep his word that when we believe in the gospel, that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that he actually will save us from our sins that he's, like he said he would. It's a, is that a sign of your life? Where is your confidence in? Where do you rest and put your comfort and your hope? And in our baptisms today, our friends are going to boast in God's work in their life. They won't boast in their baptism. They will boast in Christ and a response to the salvation that they've received and they will be baptized. And so we worship in spirit, we boast in Christ and we put our confidence in God and we rejoice in that. And Paul reminds us now that we don't rejoice, like I said, of looking backwards. Look with me again at verse four. 
Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. In these verses, Paul is addressing not only his spiritual privileges, but his ethnic privileges are, and he's renouncing them rather, for the sake of knowing Christ. Just in case anyone thinks he has a good resume, I walked up that higher hill with more snow, Paul has a better one. Paul has the best resume for the person living in, from a Jewish culture in the first century. He's like Tom Brady. I actually did some research. Did you know that Tom Brady won over 85% of his home games? He only lost 21 games in his entire career in New England. I think that's pretty good home field advantage. But here, Paul is saying, his home field advantage is in nothing but Christ. He has excelled at that home field advantage as he's looking back. And we see seven things that Paul references on why he had an advantage before he met Christ. The first four are his inherited privileges. First, he references circumcision. His mom and dad were good Jewish man and woman. They followed the guidelines of scripture. They circumcised their son on the eighth day after he was born. Second, he references his heritage to the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his lineage of the people of Israel. He didn't earn this. He was born into this. And as I was thinking about it, you know, he has dozens of generations going back to the people of Israel. And what is it? Three to five generations, depending on who you ask to be a true Vermonter. You guys have nothing on him. And these Judaizers, they wanted to bring Gentiles into God's people, but Paul had it by birth. Third, he references his lineage to Benjamin. Benjamin is the 12th and final son of Jacob. And when the nation of Israel split, 10 tribes were in the north and two were in the south. And Benjamin was the only tribe that was faithful to the Davidic line in Judah, Paul's tribe. Fourth and finally, Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like Lord of Lords means that he is Lord above all lords, referencing to Jesus. The most important person. Paul was a Hebrew above all Hebrews. Basically, he's saying, I'm the best of the people of Abraham. And he was born of Hebrew parents. He maintained all Hebrew traditions. He continued to speak the Hebrew language and the normal language of the time was Greek. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And those first four were inherited. And he has three personal achievements to add to his resume on top of that. First, he was a Pharisee. Pharisees were legalistic. And they had so much zeal for keeping the law of God that they wanted to make sure it was impossible for God's people to ever break it. So they made laws around the laws. Well, you'll never break God's law if we make rules around the laws that you can only break those and never break those laws that we see in the scripture. And I have to say that the Pharisees took all the fun out of the fundamentals in the process. 
Not only was he a Pharisee with the law, but he was second, a persecutor of the church. He says this in Galatians chapter 1. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So extremely zealous was he that he took liberty to kill Christians. The Jews thought that they were, they were to defend God with the sword and that was of the highest virtue. Like Phineas, you might know the story from the book of Numbers. One of the sons of Aaron, he saw two people committing sexual morality and went up and shoved a spear through both of them. Or David, when he saw Goliath, he was so jealous or zealous for that which was God's alone, God's glory, this took place. In 1 Samuel 17, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. In this part, we don't see in the children's Bibles much, but I will give to the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Jealousy for God's glory is right. He's the only one who deserves it. Jealousy is oftentimes, I think, a misunderstood word in our culture. If someone were to take one of my children, I would be jealous to bring them back to me because they are mine. And Paul was jealous, though, for the wrong thing, with a wrong understanding that God saved the church, and the church is part of God's chosen people. God didn't lose that which was his in saving the church. He gained it back. And just in case his law-abiding citizenship or his sword-wielding murdering were not enough, Paul called himself blameless. Before believing in Jesus, Paul outwardly kept all of the law so well that he thought he was blameless and perfect. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus says this, Jesus says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But what Paul didn't realize was that Jesus' words were meant to point us to the fact that we can never keep the law perfectly, that we need a savior. Paul had not failed at being a Jewish man. His heredity, his achievements, his resume before meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus were perfect. Our main idea this morning, that rejoice. Rejoice by not by looking back. Paul's resume was the best. We rejoice by looking forward, as we'll see in the next section. Will you look with me at verse seven? Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul counts it all as lost. Everything that Paul did, everything that he had and inherited, 
is loss. It was worth no credit towards his account for God. It's gospel economics, where Paul is talking about profits and losses. So Paul could choose to lose it all, to disregard it all, and to cast it all aside, his heritage, his resume, for the sake of Christ. The profit that comes from Christ is worth the loss of everything to Paul. He didn't count his life even worth maintaining. Friends, knowing Christ makes everything else futile. And this type of knowledge isn't just a knowledge about something or someone. Well, I know that Phil Scott is the governor of Vermont. This type of knowledge that Paul is referencing is a more intimate, all-encompassing, deep knowledge. It's like how I know my wife. She knows my quirks. I know her quirks. I know from looking at her face, it might have been a hard day, as she did and asked me, What's going on one day this week? I didn't have to say a word. It's how I know my wife where if I say something in a certain way, she may respond positively or negatively. It's that type of knowledge that we are to know Christ. Paul says that everything else is rubbish and worth losing for the sake of knowing Christ like that. Some of you who live close to a farm recently have probably had some manure spread in the last few weeks, and you'll probably have some more coming up soon. You don't call that rubbish, do you? It's poop. Paul counts his resume as manure compared to knowing Christ. It's the same word. It's not trash. It's manure. In Mark 1, Jesus called James and John, two brothers, to follow him. He says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending their nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the the hired servants and followed him. These two brothers, they dropped their nets. They left their father. They left their livelihood. They left their eventual inheritance of the family business to follow and know Christ Jesus. Like Paul, they lay it all down so that they may know Jesus. Friends, there may be a time when we have to lay down our lives to give up everything for the sake of following and knowing Christ. Are we willing to do that? Paul says, it's worth it. In the early church, one's membership, which would be required for someone to be baptized, the process that they went through took three years. The reason for this is they wanted to make sure that the individual who wanted to join the body of believers to be baptized was truly one of them. They were scared that they might have an infiltrator that could come in to the early church and persecute them. Today in parts of the world, when you become a Christian, it is a death sentence. Here in Vermont, United States, not so much. It's probably not gonna happen here tomorrow. It may not happen for a decade or two, but it could. Are we ready for that? Is the gospel, is Jesus, is knowing him worth it for you? Paul's life is lost for Christ. I doubt he was invited to marry many Pharisee birthday parties after he renounced his former life. 
His stuff is less valuable than knowing Jesus. His bank account is worth being empty for Christ. Everything is dung so that he may have Christ and that, friends, is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And as we see in verse nine, Paul wants to be found in Christ. In verse one, he says, we rejoice in Christ. We are found in the sphere of relationship with the sovereign God of the universe who keeps his promises that he will save his people from our sins when we believe in the atoning work of Jesus on our behalf. Theologians call this idea union with Christ. Paul says we have union with Christ because we have an imputation or God putting Jesus' righteousness upon us where his righteousness is now counted as our own when we believe in him. A righteousness from God that depends on faith as we see in our chapter. I was listening to a podcast this week and the podcast took a turn and it was talking about union with Christ and they gave this illustration. I thought it was very helpful uh, for us understanding what it means to be in Christ. I've modified it a little bit. And he says this, imagine yourself at an airport about to board a plane. The plane is on its way to Florida with the other snowbirds. What relationship do you need to have with the plane at this point? Would it be helpful to be under the plane, to submit yourself to the plane's imminent authority and the whole flying to Florida thing? Or would it be helpful to be inspired by the plane, to watch it fly off and whisper, one day, I hope to do that too. What about following the plane? You know the plane is going to Florida, so it stands to reason if you take note of the direction that it's going, it's probably that way. If you follow it, you'll end up there too. The key relationship you need with the plane is not to be under it, behind it, or inspired by it. You need to be in it. Because by being in the plane, what happens to the plane happens to you. The question, did you get to Florida, will be part of a larger question. Did the plane get to Florida? And if the answer to the second question is yes, and if you were in the plane, then what happened to the plane also happened to you. And this is being in Christ, union with Christ. According to the Bible, the New Testament, to be in Christ is to say that by union with him, whatever is true of him is now true of you and I for those who believe. He died, we died. He was raised, we are raised. He is vindicated, we are vindicated. He is loved, we are loved. And so on and so forth. All because we are in him. And that's the new resume that we bring to the table. We believe. We have Jesus' resume. Well, what have you done? Our answer is faith. What have you accomplished? Our answer is faith. Why should I let you into heaven? Our answer is faith. Why should I save you from your sins? Our answer is faith. Paul, as one commentator says, it has a constant, confident, continuous confession of total dependence on and trust in Jesus Christ for the necessary requirement to enter into God's kingdom. Baptism after we believe 
doesn't save. Faith in Jesus saves and faith alone. Prior to knowing Jesus, Paul understood the law as a means to be saved. What he missed is it was a means to point to our need for a savior because we can never keep the law perfectly. Paul thought keeping the law produced righteousness. He thought he could achieve it, but what Christ does is he gives us an imputed righteousness achieved by Jesus alone, and it's now counted to our account by just believing the gospel. We rejoice. We don't rejoice by looking backward. We rejoice by looking forward. And we are to have our final joy by looking forward to our final resurrection. Look at verse 10 with me. Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Friends, we rejoice by looking forward to knowing Jesus fully and completely. We know him and the power of his resurrection, that Jesus is Lord because he rose. We saw a few weeks back in chapter two how Jesus humbled himself by the becoming obedient to the point of death, that he rose and God exalted him and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus himself rose himself from the dead. He is God and as Paul participates in this resurrection power, as Paul has a deep communion with the tribulations and the sufferings which every Christian goes through, Paul rests as well in the life-giving power of Jesus who rose from the dead. And that power gives us a new life as well as we share in the resurrection of Jesus ourselves. Even Paul's present circumstances are a display of God's power. He also knows that he will participate in a future resurrection from the dead where his life will last forever. Jesus said this in John chapter 17. He said this in verse three, he said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says believing is eternal life. Not believing will be eternal life. For those who believe in the gospel, God, he saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Forget your past resume. Grasps onto Christ, knowing Christ is eternal life now. Eternal life starts the moment you believe, not when you die. As Paul said in his first visit to Philippi, when he was in a Philippian jail, in Acts chapter 16, he's talking to the jailer and he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so this God is worth worshiping. We will worship now. We will glory in Christ now. He is due the glory and we should give him that in our singing. Let's sing loud. We have much to rejoice. We will worship as well by giving of our tithes and offerings. You can do that in the back or online. We will worship in celebrating some baptisms together as we celebrate with new members joining God's family. And our brothers, as our brothers and sisters go into the water, remember Jesus' death on your behalf. And as our brothers and sisters rise 
from the water. Remember his resurrection on your behalf, that in him we have a newness of life. And because of that, we are in Christ. He will get us to our final resurrection from the dead. So as I invite the worship team to come back up, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises, that you will never go back on your word and that we can rest in you. God, that which you start, you will bring to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And so God, would you help us to not look back, God, that we would look forward and rest in who you are and what you've done and what you will do in our lives. God, we thank you for the ultimate, most important thing that you've done in saving us from our sins. And so God, we want to worship you. We want to give you the glory that you deserve in the rest of our time together. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.